This message, I've, I've given a rendition of this message many times because it's a, a very apt, like a wedding worship service message. But today is not a wedding. But in a way, it can be too. Okay, and so you'll see what I mean later on. And I've entitled this. I'm always giddy when I come up with a nifty title. And so this title is The First Significant Miracle with a Sign Embedded in There. Okay, uh, okay that's my pun for the day. Um, the Gospel of John is written by John, who very methodically and carefully uh, wrote in the things that he felt like is very significant. It's worth highlighting. And there's so many different facets of what Jesus has done. And so he includes particular things scattered throughout the entire gospel as clues or signs that point to some truth that will be really disclosed at the end. I mean, isn't that what the best of writers do? They just drop little signs and hints and clues along the story. And John is very intentional. He says it forthright and near the end of his gospel because he can't keep writing this gospel. He needs to close it. And he says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs, and these are the miracles, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In fact, he is very selective about what he includes and what he feels like, you know what, it didn't really make the cut. And he only has seven miracles of many, many, many miracles that Jesus performed in Jesus' ministry. But he selects just seven. And the one that uh, we're going to cover today in John chapter 2 is the very first of these miracles that's selected. And this is not just a sign of who Jesus is, because, I mean, clearly Jesus is a miracle worker. He, I'll, I'll give away the, the punchline. He transforms water into wine. I mean, that's... That's a miracle. That's, that's not just mixing and stirring and stuff like that. You're creating carbon where there was no carbon. Okay, that's chemistry right there, right? Because it's H2O, hydrogen, oxygen. But you have, in wine, you have carbon also. He is more than just a fantastic chemist. He, in performing this particular miracle, is showing us a, a picture of a reality of life in our lives, as well as who he is. He is disclosing himself in ways that go way beyond just seeing him as a miracle worker. And for the context of this, I'd like to show you this um, artist's rendition of, um, of a first century typical wedding banquet in the times and, and the places of, uh, of Jesus' life. And so this has all of the details, and so we're going to focus in on some of these details. But the context is a wedding banquet, the pinnacle of joy. She said, I do. Right? So for the guys, it's like, what a relief. It's done. Okay? She said, I do. And so now we can just party. It's banquet time. Lots of good food, lots of laughter, lots of performances on stage, all of that stuff. Now we could celebrate. Nothing could go wrong, right? And of course... We know something goes wrong. And so let's just go ahead and start off this passage. We're going to take it a little bit at a time. And so John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, and a little bit of 3. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, and I, I'm going to just pause there for a moment because this this, in the midst of smiles, laughter, joy, merriment, tragedy strikes. 
tragedy strikes this couple and their families. Back then, wine running out at a wedding banquet was the most disastrous of things, especially since the wedding banquets were a huge deal. I mean, you, you are fortunate that if you get married in the 21st century, it's not first century Palestine because the, the wedding banquet back then was one week long. It's a lot of money, okay? That's a lot of money to throw this one week long party. And especially, it's a huge deal in a culture where hospitality made all the difference between shame versus honor. For not just that couple, but for the two families that are represented in this wedding. With so much at stake, people will plan 100%. Double check, triple check that planning doc so that nothing goes wrong. But as John is interested in showing us things... Instead of just illustrating that Jesus is able to perform this miracle, this is a sign at multiple levels. First of all, this is a sign of our human condition that shows us that we lack control over our lives no matter how much you and I and this couple and their families plan. That's the verdict that is expressed in this story. That we are frail, we are weak, we can't secure, we can't control. Even with the best laid plans of mice and men, things will fall. You don't believe me? Just rewind the clock a couple of years. Rewind to 2020 when COVID-19, the virus from the previous year. That is a sign of how helpless we all are. Even with the most advanced technological you know, age that we're living in, everything went out the door. And like the wine that ran out, everything in life will run out eventually. And so I just want to pause here for a moment to get us to kind of think about it. Okay, so is this true? Is this sign kind of representative of life? And so I'd like to just have you just for 10 seconds. This isn't going to even require you to think. Okay, so just turn to your neighbor. What runs out in life? All right, so that's about 10 seconds. You know, I would say money runs out, right? Money runs out. Your financial aid runs out. Health runs out. Oh, some of you are like, ouch. Uh, Health runs out. Patience runs out. Resolve runs out, love runs out, and then it gets a little serious. Uh, Maybe you're already at that stage in your life, even though you're not even 20 years old yet, and it's not even fourth week of school yet, but the excitement runs out, the novelty runs out, the friends, they run out. The excitement that, that began with the first week of trying all of these things, it runs out, and now it's boring again. It all fizzles out. It's almost as sure as the second law of thermodynamics, okay? Some of you are really nerdy. You understand what I'm saying. But here is the important point from this story. It's not just to get you to feel bad and sad and all of this, the reality of life. But this point where where you recognize you're face-to-face with your helpless state and your weariness that as a human being, things run out, this is a good place to be. This is a good place to be, to find yourself in. Because in this story, if the wine never ran out, then there would be no occasion for Jesus to step in and to reveal himself and to transform this this moment, which would have been utter shame, disaster, tragedy, into, as we'll see at the end, this is the complete 180-degree U-turn. It's a miracle. This is one of those occasions that we should... Find our, we will find ourselves in. 
One day or another, we're going to find ourselves in that predicament. And this is where you need to look around and see how is God, maybe through Jesus, able to transform this, this tragedy into something glorious. And so um, I'd like for us to just take a look at what has happened here in the sequence of events. Because this is something that Jesus has said before, you know, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That's a bad place to be. But then Jesus says, that's a good place to be. That's a blessed place to be because of something else that could happen when I enter in into that picture, into that story. And so what we have here is in John chapter 2, verse 3. Let's start it up again. When the wine ran out, here's the first step. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we'll get to this at at the end here, because right now it's like, why is Jesus so rude? Is he not from Texas or something? I mean, it's... And then in verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they fill them up to the brim. Now, this response um, where Mary says to the servants in verse 5, do whatever he tells you. And this is, this is really interesting because um, the focus is on Jesus. Every, you know, everyone in this little conversation is looking to Jesus. Jesus, what can you do? What are you going to do? Are you going to rescue this, this poor couple? from humiliation. But Jesus does something in involving other people. So Jesus said to the servants, now, Jesus could have done the whole thing by himself. He could have, with a, with a snap of his you know, fingers, he could have filled up all of the, the, um, the water jugs into, and then converted it into wine, create wine like that. He could have done that, but he said to the servants, he involves people around. He involves them, and he says, fill the jars with water. Now, that's a lot of hard work, but actually, as we'll see in a moment, this may be the easier part of the task that Jesus tells these servants to do. And they fill them to the brim, and it's because, I mean, they're doing that every day. Why not now? I mean, I could just fill it up right now, right? They're servants. They know how to be obedient to commands, and they know that this is part of their task, and so they're going to do this mundane thing. Why not? But it's the second part, and this is the highlighted verse 8. And he said to them, after they did this hard work, labor of going to the well, going to the water source, getting the water bucket by bucket. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, this is the crazy part. This is the hard ask. This is, this is the part where, I, you know, you want to push back. If I were one of the servants, I would have pushed back at Jesus and I would have said, excuse me, sir. Okay, because I'm a Texan, right? Excuse me, sir. But that doesn't make sense. Because the master of the banquet right now, he needs another refill of the wine. Because he's about to toast, another toast for the bride and groom and the whole family. It's a celebration. He doesn't need water. He needs wine. And if I were to fill this jug with this water, and believe me, it's water because I filled it. This is water, and I'm going to take it to him. He's expecting wine, and I pour it into his cup, and he takes a sip. You know what he's going to do? He is going to curse me. He's going to spit it out, maybe spit it at me. I'll be ridiculed. 
made a fool of? I mean, I'm a servant, but I don't want to do that. That's what I would have done. But to their credit, these servants, at the end of verse 8, so they took it. Maybe it is this servant mindset and identity that has been forged for a while, and they simply do this thing that, you know, it seems crazy at first. But in so doing, they give us an example. In so doing, they give us an example for us to likewise emulate in situations perhaps similar to this, where what Jesus tells us to do, you know, it may not be necessarily go fill this bucket with water and then take it to a banquet, but Jesus commands us and tells us to do things that, from our perspective, our vantage point, it seems rather foolish. It doesn't make any sense. And so I'd like for you to just consider um, what are some commands that Jesus tells you to do that seem foolish? Um, as I thought about it, you know, I looked over even like his Sermon on the Mount. You know, this is most popular sermon, right, in Matthew chapter 5. And in verse 44 there, he says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. This is crazy. It's hard enough to love my friends and even my spouse, right, and vice versa. And I'm called to love my enemies and even pray for them? That doesn't make sense. Another is, forgive my brother who sins against me 77 times. And that's wrong by an order of magnitude, right, in my book. Seven times is hard enough. 77 times? Come on, that's crazy. Another is, keep on pouring your love, energy, time that is limited to you on people who are not going to be reciprocating or even appreciating. And for many of us, when we hear commands like this, and we're tempted to say, you're going to make me look like a fool. And that's what these servants, chances are. I mean, that's why, you know, I don't know if you notice, this servant that Jesus is telling, go ahead and take some. I can't see his eyes, but his eyes must be like bulging out. It's like, Jesus, you got to be kidding me, right? You serious? But they fulfill, and they do it. Um, another thing that's to their credit, these, these servants, is they're not doing it half-heartedly or begrudgingly. They do it fully. And this is one of those details that's included in this finely crafted Gospel of John. In verse 7, it says, they fill them up to the brim. Hats off to them. Because this is a lot of water. Okay, this is full obedience to the full amount of and six stone jars carrying about 20 to 30 gallons. And so, I mean, we've perhaps uh, lugged one of those five-gallon jugs before, right? Um, this is the number of five-gallon jugs that this is kind of roughly equivalent to. You know, it's hard enough to just lug a couple of those onto the shopping cart. It's like this much without a cart. Requires a lot of energy, sweat, muscles. And they're not just doing the bare minimum. But this is where, once again, if you place yourself in their midst, I wonder what they might have been thinking. Because it's just very natural for human beings. When, when they're doing this thing, it's like I'm putting in all of this energy, I'm putting in all of this effort, and it's not working. Am I wasting my time? Am I wasting my energy? Nothing has changed. Because, remember, even after they filled up all of these six large uh, jars with all of that water, it hasn't changed into wine. It's not a gradual transformation, but it is 
a sudden transformation that happened way at the end, almost, I, I mean, I don't know exactly when, but it's clearly from the time that he obediently took that, that uh, jug of water, took it to the master of the banquet, and then maybe even as he's pouring it, he sees, oh my gosh, it's not water, it's wine, it's red. Something happened. And this side of that moment when something happens, we're always going to be plagued with, am I wasting my time? You know, even in terms of trying to, like, come to Bible study or church. And some of you may be thinking, you know, I'm not getting it still. I still have questions. Nothing's changing in me. I'm not as saintly as I had hoped that I would be by now. And you're looking back at your three, four years, or even like 10 years or 20 years. And you're like, I haven't changed. And you're tempted to throw in the towel and say, it's not working. Why bother? Or you could even be in your attempt to be obedient to God's words and commands, to love your fellow brother and sister. I mean, you haven't even made it to the enemies yet. You're just trying your best to love your small group guys. And you're like, I need to forgive them as Christ forgave me. Man, we've been meeting together and spending time together, but there's no warmth There's no community. But like this miracle, perhaps the ultimate transformation may be down the road. And for us, here and now, we need to be simply obedient to every prompting of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that prompts us to listen to him, do whatever he tells us to do, no matter what the outcome may be at the moment or how long that outcome might take. And thank God for these people who who brought it and and served it up, filled it up to the brim. Because to that extent, in proportion to the level of obedience, they had an abundance of wine at the end for many people to enjoy. Their full obedience led to a blessing to many people. Now, as I mentioned, this miracle is full of signs. And this, I think, is one of the signs that I don't really talk about in a wedding message, but I think is very fitting here. And it's in verse 6, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. Six stone water jars. Jesus uses these vessels in particular. When, as I said, I mean, I'm just speculating, but Jesus is the son of God. He could do anything. He could perform miracles in whatever fashion, in whatever mode. He could have, he could have just had the cups refill every time it touches the table. Okay, He could have done that. He could have rained down in drops. Wouldn't that be like an amazing miracle, right? Nowhere else is raining, but here is rain, drops coming, and as soon as it touches the cup, wine. Man, that would get followers, right? He could have done any which way, but he says, oh, those, those stone water jars, and it's indicated here what the purpose of those stone water jars were for, and this is for the Jewish rites of purification. And Jesus says, wait a minute. I think I could craft this miracle in a way that will be very significant with many layers of signs. And in fact, um, that's what John at the end of this passage in verse 11, he says this, the first of his signs did at Cana in Galilee and manifested, revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And it starts with Jesus saying, I could have performed this miracle in whatever way, but I'm going to select those vessels. That was used for the ceremonial washing 
so that all of the impurities could be washed off, so that these Jewish people who are wanting to worship and be close to their, their heavenly father, their God, would be able to approach God who is holy, holy, holy. And Jesus uses these stone jars to show this sign, this very first sign. And, and you know, it's not just the, the Jewish religious faith, but this is one of those things that um, it's, it's common to many religions, many traditions. There's, you know, washing, ceremonial washing as a part of their act of worship, as a, as a way in which they know, I know I am sinful. I know I am wrong. I know this to be true about me. And I somehow know that there is a God way up there or way powerful, way holy. And so I must wash away my sin. In a journal that I used to read a lot, but I don't read anymore, uh, Journal of Science. I mean, this is top-notch science. This is science and nature. I mean, these are the two best journals in, uh, in scientific uh, literature. There was this particular article that was published in 2006. Get the title, Washing Away Your Sins, Threatened Morality and Physical Cleansing. And as a part of the first paragraph there in the abstract, it, it, it cites this Macbeth effect. And those of you who are not into reading science, but reading Shakespeare, you know Macbeth, right? Where after she uh, murders, after committing murder, Lady Macbeth is just obsessively washing her hands, washing away the guilt. It's just innate in all of us that we need to somehow be purified. We need to be cleansed. But Jesus is saying, fill those stone water jars that you are a regular customer too. You are washing away your sins, but you somehow know that it's inadequate. And this is why that number six, that number six is highlighted. Because Jesus could have been, hey, those, those stone water jars, and then John could have been like, oh, yeah, yeah, those, there was more than one, I think it was, maybe like a, a few. But later, as he is very observant, he's like, oh, my gosh, there's one, two, three, four, five, six. And what is six? It is one short of seven. And in the Gospel of John, the number seven is really symbolic, significant of perfection, complete. And six is one shy, missing that mark. Inadequate, insufficient, lacking. This is one of the themes in this entire miracle, hasn't it been? Things run out, it's inadequate. All of the planning, all of the, all of the scheming, all of that, the joy runs out, it's inadequate. And here is Jesus just really leveraging this moment and saying, this is going to be one of those signs that's going to show you what I have come here on earth to do. To step into this space of inadequacy with regards to your moral cleansing, your cleansing of your sins. What can wash away our sins as we just sang this song? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You can't wash away your polluted hearts and minds with whatever hand sanitizer, whatever you know, detergent. You can't do that. It's as inadequate as washing with soap and water for treating terminal cancer. It's entirely inadequate. The Bible tells us that we are in need of cleansing, not externally through all kinds of rituals or things that you could do, even in terms of coming to church. But it's a cleansing of the soul, cleansing from the inside where your heart and mind is filthy. And the Bible 
through, even through our recent daily devotions in the, in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 3, we were reminded again and again, verse 10, none is righteous. No, not one. And the famous Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It is really highlighting this clear sign and truth that as humanity, our righteousness is utterly inadequate. No matter what we do, and all of the righteous deeds are like filthy rags to God. And Jesus, in performing this miracle that's even visual, he is saying all of the water that's clear is going to be transformed into wine that is red. Red. It is It is. Just very clear for everyone there, later on, when, when they realize what Jesus has done in that miracle, it is significant. This is showcasing his blood. And he, he gave it away in Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 28. This is the last supper that he had with his disciples. And, and no wonder it made sense. Everything clicked, everything. Now I could see the sign from that first miracle. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks... He gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It is Jesus's blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. You know, as, as Mary went to Jesus at this stage in John chapter three, it's like, can you do something about this problem? And Jesus, I mean, of course, he's part of this wedding banquet party, right? That's a problem. But in his mind, his biggest problem, his greatest mission is to save people from their sins. And so that's why he said, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And, and I kind of alluded to this at the first message in the Gospel of John. But John chapter 7, verse 30. So when they were seeking to arrest him, uh, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour has not yet come. In John chapter 8, these words he spoke in the treasury as, as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour has not yet come. And then now in John chapter 12, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And what is that moment, that hour? It is the hour, as it says in verses 32 and 33, when he is lifted up, hoisted onto that cross. And that is the kind of death that he was going to die by shedding his precious blood. That is sufficient, completely sufficient. It is exactly what is needed for a sinful humanity. Could never, we could never wash away our sins. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And Jesus' blood could do what these six jars could never do. And that is to wash us completely, fully, adequately. So that we could even dare to stand before a holy, holy, holy God. Now, before we wrap up, there's an interesting contrast and a conclusion at the end. And so let's take a look in verses 9 through 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves a good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This newly wedded couple, 
who's kind of clueless to everything, right? Because they're just, you know, staring at each other. Oh, honey. Oh, isn't this great? Everyone's so happy. This is joyful. I mean, I'm so glad you, you planned that wedding doc. You know, you even proved it and everything. They don't know what happened behind the scenes. And this master of the banquet is like, oh, my gosh, I may be a little drunk, but I could taste good wine. This is really good. And he's like, this is so strange. This is not the way the world works. The way that the world works is you start with a bang, and then it's like diminishing. Gets less and less. So you run out of the excitement. You run out. And, and what he says is really like, it's a recapitulation of this entire story it, that something good always runs out. And he says this as if he is like the wisest of, of people who's just, you know, pontificating, right? But get this. The highlight here is John notices that this master of the feast, who's just saying all of these things that, uh, you know, it's, it's like these are the commentators of the world, but they did not know. He did not know where it came from. And then in parentheses, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The servants, they knew how this miracle happened. How it could have been, you know, for this newly wedded couple, the, 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 the pits of shame at this tragedy of their lives. And yet, this transformation Instead of shame, they are honored. This master of the banquet is like toasting. This is the best couple ever. They even bring out the best at the end. From shameful curse of a lifetime to a glorious compliment of a lifetime. And it's all because of Jesus. But Jesus loves to involve the servants. The, Jesus, the, the servants who know. They know who Jesus is. In their obedience, because of their obedience, they know how it is so much more blessed to give than to receive because they see the, the effects of it. The party has elevated. It has gone way up. And the servants, I think, represent something else. In a way, the servants have experienced a transformation themselves. You just think about the lowly life of a servant. Going to the well, going to the river, get some water, come back, fill up this jug again. Okay, whatever I need to do, do that again and again and again. What kind of life is that? That, that is a, a menial life. That is a boring life. That is a dull life. If you want to just use a, a kind of a drink for that, that's just water. Right? You know where I'm headed. Now, after Jesus has commanded them to do something and they do it, what is their life? They are rescuing a tragedy into this kind of a life that is just elevated and praise and glorious. This is a life that has been transformed. The servants are no longer living a water life in a stone jug. It is now living a life that is like wine, bringing merriment and joy and life to everyone that they interact with and that they serve. And this is where I hope you will locate yourself in this story. The servants were transformed. And as transformed beings that have been turned from water into wine, 
Now they're able to be those servants that are bringing that wine, that, that red blood of Jesus Christ to all of the people around who need more than a party. They need to be invited to the greatest wedding banquet, and that is in heaven. They need to be saved. They need to be cleansed of their sins so that they could be there at that wedding banquet, the glorious wedding banquet where the bride of Christ could be with Jesus Christ forever and ever. And the bride of Christ is the church. And so that is what I've experienced. You know, as I was preparing for this message, um, this is a very familiar passage. But even this morning, as I was just thinking about what has happened in my life and how this story really captures it, I was led to tears. And, you know, it's not like I get led to tears every single, you know, sermon. But this one, somehow, as I just found myself as part of these servants. Now, the things that I do, it's not just for menial things. Even though it may be a menial, ordinary, mundane thing. Like smiling. That's ordinary to me, okay? It's like saying, Barry, how are you? And I did that today, right, Barry? Yeah, and I made note of his green inner shirt and his green outer shirt. I was like, nice. That's a menial, ordinary kind of greeting for me. I mean, I just engaging in a conversation with a student, trying to talk about, you know, okay, so what's your spiritual background? How could I help you with your misconceptions about God and about Jesus? Even as Susanna and I, we go through the, the kind of ordinary, mundane, menial kind of things of like, mediating between husband and wife who have misunderstandings. Are there some husband and wives who, you know, you got some misunderstandings? Oh, yeah, I see some people nodding their heads. Take a number, okay? I'll, I'll meet with you guys. <laughs> and preparing for yet another message on John chapter 2. For some of you, it may be shopping for food or cooking up food for food for thought, which requires a lot of thought, Okay. Preparing aluminum trays of salad, setting up chairs and tables, takedown, winding up cable, passing out flyers for yet another special talk that we'll have this Friday. Many of us do the ordinary things. Why? Because Jesus commands us to do. But when we do it, as we do it, this is the amazing miracle. Jesus keeps turning it into wine. And you know what? It gets better and better. It defies the pattern of this world. And I say, why don't you try? Why don't you take a taste of what Jesus' blood has done for you, can do in your life to transform you? And be obedient to his commands. Yes, even the mundane things like, why don't you be a good roommate? Love your roommate. And, and do the dishes, okay, for starters. It's a mundane thing that you're like, I'm not a servant. But the heroes of the story are the servants who obey. And in their obedience, they're able to transform the mundane into one that Jesus is able to reveal his glory. And so I want to just end with that. I want to encourage you with the words of Mary. Do whatever Jesus tells you. And by God's grace, you'll get to be a part of a miracle in the making that gets better and better each year.
So with that, I just want to just end with this one prompt. If you could just turn to your neighbor. I mean, there's a lot of different signs from this passage, right? And so what sign from this passage is most significant either for you or most significant for this world today?